Welcome to Bike Talk Tangential Edition. You are here with Galen Mook, Executive Director of Mass Bike, as the interviewer. And we have invited today Lloyd Alter, who will be our interviewee, who is going to talk about the power and wonder and the transformational change that electric bicycles bring. And before I let Lloyd jump right in to give us the spiel and teach us the gospel, just let you know that Lloyd is the current design editor and contributor to Treehugger Magazine, been there since 2005. He's zooming in here from Toronto, where he's also a professor at Ryerson University and a author of the recently published Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle, talking about how to live more sustainably, where he extols the benefits through a whole chapter on how much he loves riding his e-bike around. And for those of you who ever visited Toronto, it's relatively flat, but it's got a little bit of hills that you can tackle on the e-bike. It's a dense, nice urban core. So I'm curious to just talking about e-bikes with Lloyd. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Cool. I'm looking at a article that was published maybe a week ago or so, where you're talking about politicians and planners are missing the e-bike revolution. So first off, I want to hear what is the e-bike revolution and why are folks missing it? What's going on? Well, the e-bike revolution is that for many years, e-bikes were just thought of as bicycles for old people that had a motor on them to make it easier for old people to use them. And everybody looked down their nose at them for years. They were being said, you're cheating, you're riding an e-bike. But what's really happened is they're not really just bicycles with motors. They're pretty much, I think, almost a different mode of transportation. And the reason is that a bike is work. A bike is serious work. Even in Toronto, which you said is flat, Toronto's actually built in a tilt going down to the lake. And there's a big escarpment in the middle of it. And I live right at the top of the escarpment. So when I used to bicycle to Ryerson to teach, I'd sort of rolled all the way down there. In the morning, you're all fresh on that. And then everybody in the afternoon, suddenly you've got this long, shallow slope with a big up at the end to get to my house. And a lot of people fundamentally didn't ride bicycles in Toronto because it was hard to get home. It was exhausting. Even though it's relatively flat, you're working the whole way home. And what e-bikes did really was they sort of flatten it completely so that coming home is no different than getting there. I know people in Seattle who I know one guy who actually works in the greenest building in the United States, the Bullet Center, and mm -hmm. he is an e-bike and uh, he's, look, I'm in Seattle. I have seven big hills to get up and down. I couldn't do it without an e-bike. So what they're actually doing is they're letting people use the electric vehicle as real transportation that they wouldn't do with a conventional bike. They're using it differently. They're going further. They're carrying more stuff on it. And in Europe, this has been where they've had like the pedelec style e-bikes for oh, I think now 15 years, they're hugely popular. The uptake on them, like half of every bike sold now in Europe is, I believe, an e-bike. And those are big, big numbers. 
and they're letting people go much further. And again, what I see them, you know, they're not toys, they're real transportation. And from a design point of view, I like the European pedelecs that are bikes with a boost rather than the American three-class system. Because if you're going to have separate infrastructure for bikes, which we have to have, to make this revolution really happen, we have to have three things, good affordable bikes, we have to have safe places to ride, and we have secure places to park. And the thing I like about the European pedelec limit on it is that they play nicely in the bike lanes. They don't go that much faster than a bike. They don't scare cyclists off. They're, I think, the right speed and everything comes because of American exceptionalism. Everything when it came over here, oh, 250 watts won't push an American up a hill. Well, of course they will. They push Europeans up the hills. But of course, they had to say, let's have 750 watts. And oh, let's have throttles because you don't want to have to pedal, even though having to pedal to make the motor click in actually is brain dead easy. You don't have to think about anything. You just pedal and the bike moves. And then, oh, 20 miles an hour isn't enough, even though 15 miles an hour is enough for Europe. We're going to have a class three that goes 28 miles an hour, which is way, way too fast to be safe in the bike lanes with regular bikes. Yeah. So just to be clear, for those at home who are listening, I'll do a quick deep dive of the layman's terms here. So what Lloyd is referring to is in America, we have a three-class system, which is based off a consumer protection law that came about in 2002, 2003, somewhere along those lines, where the feds basically said, hey, e-bikes are going to be a thing. Let's make sure the manufacturers are held to making bikes and not motorcycles. So what they did is they adopted three classes. The first class is the motor kicks on when the bike is pedaled. So you have to have fully operable pedals, basically a bike with a little bit of a motor. And that's what most people think of when you think of an e-bike. And the motor cuts out at 20 miles an hour, where in Europe, what Lloyd is referring to, they cut out at 15 miles an hour. So it's slower, faster in the US, slower in Europe. And then there's a class two, where it's a pedal, but maybe you can also have a throttle, or it's purely just a throttle. But in any case, all you have to do is hit a trigger, and the motor kicks on, similar to a moped, to a motorcycle, where you don't really need to pedal, but that also limits at 20 miles an hour. And I should say 20 miles an hour is tough to limit on speed, but they can limit it by wattage. So they limit it at 750 watts, which arguably for a light bike and a light person, you can go pretty fast at 750 watts. And there's a class three, which arguably is not necessarily designed for bike paths, but maybe for American style, what we call them strodes, like the streets that are roads, where they top out at 28 miles an hour, which arguably means somebody on a bike can break the speed limit and the speed limit is 25 miles an hour. I think to your point, I agree, Lloyd, that America does have a little bit of an exceptionalism complex. We have miles, not kilometers. Right. We want to go faster. I don't know how it is in Toronto, if it's more similar to the European sensibility of, hey, we do not need to go that fast. But because you're just over the border, maybe you feel it too. These roads are big. We want to go faster. We want to go farther. Sorry for that breakout context. But for those of you at home, that's the nuts and bolts. Well, I'm sorry if I went off on a diversion there. Oh, no, please. I I like diversions. It's actually a thing that really bothers me because we didn't learn from the experience of Europe. Everybody just sort of reinvented it. And Mm -hmm. we have the American system here, the three-part system. And the bike shops that I know, the e-bike shops, they don't even sell to class three because they think they're unsafe. Yes. So here we are on that. But then I get told all the time, I really have a long way to go on my bike and I'm driving 
in from the suburbs and 20 miles an hour just isn't fast enough for me, even though the average car coming in from the suburbs is probably in rush hour doing about 10 miles an hour on average. We don't need to spend all the time on this one. That's a good point, though. We've done a study in the city of Boston. The average driver goes 12 miles an hour. Right. Fact. It's a straight fact. Right. So the problem and the whole point of my article about the revolution was, is that all of these studies come out all of the time saying that, oh, we've got to invest in electric cars, which I will not call EVs. I call e-cars because electric bikes are EVs. So I've got e-cars and e-bikes. And anyhow, so the feds came out with these huge grants that you get up to $12,500 if your family income is lower than $800,000 a year. I mean, insane numbers. And they then finally give a little bit to the e-bikes. You can get a good little credit there. And all this infrastructure for roads and other studies. I had a mayor's study that talked about e-car incentives. What do we do about e-cars? And New York just made an announcement. The new mayor is going to put in 40,000 new charging stations. I mean, you think you have trouble people shooting each other over parking spaces now. Wait till you have them all chasing after the same charging stations in the streets. And nobody ever looks at what's the alternative here. Well, you can go to Paris and you can see what the alternatives are. You stop opening all the roads to cars and you open them all up to bikes and you bring in e-bikes and you give e-bike credits and they get the fundamental point that cars are cars are cars are cars, whether they're electric or gasoline. They take up a huge amount of space. They need all of these roads. And the biggest point that I make in my book about a low carbon lifestyle is that you have to understand when anything is made, we used to talk about energy. Everything was saving energy, put on a sweater, save energy, energy, energy. (laughs) And The thing is, all our codes, everything is designed on energy, but we don't have an energy problem. We've got energy coming out of our ears with fracking. We have a carbon problem. And carbon requires a different response than energy. When you talk about carbon, you've got to talk about the carbon that went into making the vehicle, the embodied carbon. People call it embodied. I think it's a terrible word because it's not embodied. It's in the air. So I call it upfront carbon. The upfront carbon to make a Tesla Model 3 is about 15 tons. That's 15 tons of carbon that goes into the air Mm -hmm. right away. The embodied carbon to make an F-150 lightning pickup that everybody in America seems to want is about 40 tons. Mm -hmm. 40 tons of carbon is twice what every human on earth is going to have to average by 2030 as their lifetime emissions. I mean, they're shot in one vehicle. And everybody says, well, this truck is green and this Hummer, this 90-ton electric Hummer is green. But if you look at the full life cycle of these things, Mm -hmm. it's not. If you look at the full life cycle, it's half as bad. It works out still more per mile in terms of carbon emissions over the lifetime than we can afford. It just blows the carbon budget. We're not going to stay under 1.5 degrees, even if they're all electric, just because of what goes into making them. Right. So what studies found with e-bikes is that the people who are buying the e-bikes aren't coming from bikes in most cases. They're coming from cars. They're people who drove and they say, well, I'd like to try biking and that, but I'm going to get an e-bike and maybe I won't need to drive my car as much. And that's where the real revolution is. When we're moving people from cars onto e-bikes instead of from bikes onto e-bikes, 
It's what makes the big change. Now, the neatest thing about this study that I was talking about in there mm -hmm. is that it also answers the biggest problem that everybody has with bikes, and that 75% of Americans live in the suburbs. People who live in the urban cores, fewer people. People who live in rural areas, fewer people. The bulk of people are living in suburbs, and they all say, oh, I can't do this. I can't ride a bike. Everything's too far. And it's true. Like the average long bike ride for someone who's just doing it for transportation might be five miles. But in an e-bike in a half hour, you can go 10 miles comfortably. And that's the amount of time people are willing to spend traveling. And if you draw a 10-mile circle around almost anybody's house that isn't like absolutely in the lowest, lowest density stuff, you can get most of what you need to live. There's going to be a grocery store. There's going to be something. You can do your basics of life on an e-bike. That's interesting. So let's talk about the study for one second. Then I want to talk about why we're missing the boat, because I also want to say what's not being done out there. So we're hearing a lot of convincing of why e-bikes should be considered and why they're a benefit. And I 100% agree. Just to dive into the study, because I'm very interested in this from a policy perspective, being a director of an organization that's trying to get state level policy to match the federal funding, et cetera. Who participated in the study? Can you talk a little bit about how that was done and what other studies are out there? Because in order to make good arguments, we need good data. And I'm very excited about seeing some of these numbers. Yes. Well, this study was actually a study of studies done in the UK, actually not even the UK, just in England. It didn't mm -hmm. take Scotland in there. Yeah. And these people, I'm just actually clipping on them, uh, the Institute for Transport Studies at the University of Leeds. And wow. they basically examined dozens and dozens of dozens of studies. The list of references at the bottom of this one is like a yard long. It's fantastic. I've already been going through them. That's great. And it's, I think, a statistical analysis. But the main point that really, really struck out at me is that they were saying people in the cities, they've got options. They can walk because things are really close. There's usually transit and they could use regular bikes and probably aren't going any further. But what they found was the uptake, and this they found from looking at Sweden and the Netherlands, that the uptake in rural, which I think they meant sort of suburban. They used a term peri-urban, which I'd never heard before. Anyhow, that they just- Must be a British thing. Yes. Yeah. That this is where they could make a real difference because there is so much that is within that half hour comfortable drive. And they did their study, not just like a guy on a bike. They had a study saying someone carrying 33 pounds of groceries or a baby, that it's very common that they'll have the baby on the back of the bike. Mm -hmm. And this is something why the policy, from the policy end of it, so much of this is critical on those other two factors that I talked about, which are the safe places to ride and secure places to park. My daughter does about seven miles to work where she manages a coffee shop, and she's out at 6.30 in the morning in the dark on her e-bike going all the way. And I'll tell you, it makes me nervous. It makes my wife nervous. And we're in a city where it so happens that during COVID, they put in bike lanes which they're keeping, and she's on nice. a bike lane the entire distance. Mm. But it still makes you nervous. You know, you really want proper separated infrastructure if we're yep. really going to make all this happen. And the thing is, is that we're in the city where the spaces are left. If they wanted to put proper infrastructure in the suburbs, it's much, much easier. The road allowances are wider. There's more lanes. All those strodes could be converted to safer routes mm -hmm. much more easily than trying to implement the in the city, yet they never do. They say, oh my God, we need all these lanes. You can't. Right. We need eight lanes or nobody will move. 
But you and I know that's not true. No, in fact, if they have all the eight lanes, it encourages people to drive and that means nobody can. So we're full believers in the concept of induced demand. So I'm looking through the article's title and how politicians and planners are missing the e-bike revolution. So it sounds like, and I agree with it, infrastructure is the key piece that they're missing to put in there. What other policies, what boat are they not getting on here? Well, storage is a ridiculous one because when you look at what they do in Europe, it's vast. They're multi-story. They're undergrounds. There are so many places to park and they're pretty secure. And I imagine you'd have to have charging for long-term e-bike storage as well, which if you have a little lollipop loop next to a parking meter on the sidewalk, does not suffice. Yeah. No, I teach at the university one day a week, but if I want indoor safe parking there, I actually have to pay $90 a year to get a parking pass to park inside with with my bike, which Mm. is crazy. Mm. Teaching sustainable design and talking about it. And my lecture hall was on the ground floor. So I just brought my bike in and put it in the back (laughs) of the classroom. But my students can't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So even on a university that's supposed to be fairly aware, they have a terrible overpriced bike parking. And when I asked my students, how many of you biked today? One, one student out of an entire class of 100 would Mm. actually be biking. How come? Don't feel safe, no place to park. It's going to get stolen because universities are hotbed for bike theft. Right. So if you were to say, give 100 of your students e-bikes as a test case, how many do you think would continue and maybe do it on a daily basis, use as their daily ride, maybe make bicycling part of their habitual role going forward? Well, I think particularly post-COVID, a lot of them would. Everybody would. You know, they're all taking transit in. We've got good transit. They can't Mm -hmm. afford to drive in because the parking downtown is so expensive. So they're basically taking transit in. And nobody wants to be crowded into the transit right now. And actually, right now in Toronto, they mandated that all of the drivers and all the employees had to get vaccinated. And that was December 1st. And suddenly, they've had to take 20% of the trains and buses offline because they don't have the drivers. Mm-hmm. This is why there's been such a bike boom, but the politicians have to recognize that they want to promote this. They don't realize that people are coming from cars to this, mostly. Mm-hmm. So every person who isn't driving in and is e-biking in is creating, obviously, less of a problem, less of a burden, less of a cost. And it should be absolutely promoted like mad. Yep. And yet, when you read these studies... You have to search. Is e-bike even mentioned in the study about the future of transportation in our city? And it's not even on their radars. It's not even in those reports. Are there any good cities in the continental U.S. or in Canada that we can point to who is incorporating electric bicycles? And I should also mention probably other micromobility of the scooters and the wheels and the skateboards and all the rest that are kind of emerging much more precariously in some instances. Is there anybody we can point to to say, I would want to be like X? Montreal, I would say, is the most progressive. Montreal is such a great example because everybody says, oh, I can't bike. It's too cold. And Montreal is freezing. It's hilly too. It's very hilly. Yeah, yeah. it's hilly and it's freezing. Mm -hmm. And it's got fantastic separated bike lanes. It's got electric bike share. It's done everything they could to promote it. It's the only place where I've been where the bike lane's real concrete. When a truck has to do an unload, it can't stop in the bike lane. It can't get into it. On yep. the one separated bike lane that they did in Toronto, they made this little curvy concrete dishy thing so that FedEx trucks could still park there and fill it up. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's the best example I know of. I'm sure there are examples in the States, but I don't know of them. 
Cool. Well, for any listeners out here, I should mention this is a bi-coastal radio show. So we're recording via the web. I'm in Boston, but broadcast out of Florence, Mass., which is kind of in the Western Mass. area. And it's also simultaneously broadcast out of Los Angeles. So we do get a wide breadth of listeners. And so I'm encouraging anybody who's tuning in, if you have a good example that you want to send my way or Lloyd's way, please, please get in touch with Bike Talk. We're curious, especially if the pandemic has brought a new conversation to Streetscape. We're also very curious because I agree with you that the infrastructure needs to kind of match the demand. And then once you hit a critical capacity, the infrastructure will drive the demand. Right. That's absolutely true. And again, we mustn't forget the secure parking thing. Oh, yeah. I just got a lock that's so ridiculous, a new D lock that just came out of the UK that's so heavy I can barely lift it. But it's the first one that they say it's actually resistant to an angle grinder. And they show pictures of all the angle grinder blades exploding when people try and do it. And my daughter's using that lock. But it shouldn't have to be like this. E-bikes are expensive compared to regular bikes. And there aren't a lot of junker e-bikes. So instead of saying, oh, my $250 junker was stolen, you you got a $2,500 bike there that you're on. And Mm -hmm. this is a real issue. And of course, the cops don't do anything. Cars, they don't do much. But with bikes, they don't do anything at all. So this is a real issue. Sorry to go off on this tangent, but this is a good one. Have you looked into homeowners insurance that can cover or renters insurance that can cover bicycle purchases? For listeners who are out there who are like, shoot, what should I do? What should they do? Well, I have a big American insurance company that covers all my stuff and the deductible on it was sure they'll insure us and the premium wasn't that, but it's still got a $1,000 deductible and a $2,000 bike. I mean, it's still a lot of money. Yep. So these are issues that have to be solved. Okay. That's important. I want to get back to a little point you kept mentioning they're riding more. I'm curious as to who the they is and who we're seeing in the ridership. And if that needs to shift, that needs to change and what mechanisms we might be able to employ to kind of get e-bikes in front of more varieties of people. And I'm thinking definitely environmental justice communities, lower income, health adverse communities. Who is the they currently and what can we do to expand that? A lot of the people who started off in this thing came into two groups. I was talking to the exclusive e-bike shop in Toronto and the owner, she told me that really the vast majority are aging boomers who want to be able to keep up with their kids and grandsons on bikes and delivery people. These were mm-hmm. the two classes that were the bulk of their audience now. But she tells me too that that's changing, that more and more people, especially with the pandemic, they don't want to drive downtown because it's too expensive and they don't want to get on the subway to go downtown because all these people and they're now buying them for transport. And there's been a huge uptake on that. And the people who do it stick with it. I was on the radio just this week being interviewed about my book, and the guy who's the radio host has been biking to work at 4 a.m. for the last 10 years and Mm. says it's not the cold. He's now got an e-bike. The cold doesn't bother you because, you know, you're working on your bike. And with e-bikes, the great thing about them is you don't overheat in the summer because the bike is doing the bulk of the work and you actually get cool with the breeze. And in the winter, you can dress as if you're going for a walk. Mm-hmm. It used to be when I was on the bike, you had to dress like you were getting some exercise and you always dress for like about 10 degrees colder than you would if you were walking because you know you're going to exercise. So if you dress for walking, you'll be too warm and you can't take the layers off. But with the e-bike, basically because your energy output is lower, 
you can dress as if you're going for a walk in no special clothes at all. And you can dress for work and you won't be overheated in the summer and you won't be chilled in the winter. It really works. Again, I see that my daughter is doing long trips every day going to and from the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have any special wardrobe, just ski jacket and she's gone. I like it. So what I'm hearing is started off perhaps as a recreation for folks, but then there's a flip side of it as some people who are using it for straight utility. But then now you're seeing a transformation of people who are really using it for transport, transportation. And that might mean that we're going to hit a critical mass because people are going to be riding every day um, if they yes. build it into basically their daily habits. And the politicians should realize how good it is for them about how much money they'll save on everything. Mm -hmm. The British studies have shown they save on healthcare because people are skinnier and healthier when they're out there on the bike every day. They save on policing. They save on all the space that goes for parking. Studies have shown that cyclists actually spend more in shops than people who drive because they can go to more places. And I wouldn't be surprised if the study shows that people on e bikes spend more than people on bikes because they can carry a whole lot more weight. It is a limitation if you have two giant panniers filled in the back. So many people actually now are buying these cargo bikes, these stretched yep. bikes, the heavier ones. E-bikes revolutionized cargo. A friend of one of my co-workers, she takes her two kids to school every day on the back of the bike and yep. can do that. The motor gives you the assist. I love it. This is all really inspiring. So what can we do to get politicians to pay attention? For full disclosure, at MassBike in Massachusetts, we're working on statewide legislation around e-bike, the classifications, the incentives. We're trying to get a tax rebate that can be included in the electric vehicle or electric car rebate the state already does. So we have a few mechanisms we're still working on, but we're trying to get mayors to pay attention. We just got a new mayor in Boston, which obviously is the capital which of the state. supposed and to be terrific. She's great. And her chief cabinet level, who is in charge of the transportation and DPW, he rides an e-bike every day. Work. Right. So we've got him. So should we just invite them to ride e-bikes to try it for themselves? Well, what are some it, mechanisms we could pull? It's often been said that politicians should have to take the subway to work so they know what they're actually dealing with. Amen. It, Amen yeah. to that. And in this case, you know, it's the same thing, that we need more politicians who actually get on these things and see the benefits of them. But mm -hmm. their bean counters should be looking at it too. Their accounting departments should say, how much of our budgets are we spending on cars? And what difference would it make if we got more and more people out of them? Mm -hmm. What would it do to our taxes? And I think that they would find very quickly that it would make a difference. The other thing that's going to make a difference is carbon, that cities are all hopping on board and making carbon budgets and making commitments for net zero by so and so and so and so. And yet every time they demand that a building has a giant parking garage to service all the cars, suddenly they have to start looking at all the carbon that's emitted, making all that concrete. When they start doing proper analyses of the carbon footprint of the automobile, goes way beyond just the gasoline, what comes out of the tailpipe. It's like all the concrete for storing it. It's all the space. It's everything else. So at some point, these carbon commitments, if they're not just lying through their teeth, as most politicians are about their <laughs> carbon commitments, Shocking, yeah. are going to come back and bite them. Uh -huh. And getting people out of cars is probably the single best thing that we can do to reduce the carbon footprint of our cities. And so e-bikes, because so many more people can go longer distance than on regular bikes in more terrain and in more temperature range, may be a real part of the solution to the carbon footprint problem. Mm -hmm. 
This is great. I feel like we should wrap up pretty soon, but this has been really inspiring and illuminating. And I think my takeaways are that the benefits of this are more to counter the negatives of a society with which we're kind of forced into, which is car-centric, which has all the dangers and costs and just detriment associated from land use development of being car-centric. This is a way to break free from that. But in order to get there, we really have to get the planners and politicians, as your article flatly states in the headline, make sure they don't miss this revolution. Also, again, the main thing that came out of this study is the real revolution is in the suburbs because that's where the people are. That's mm -hmm. where they don't have alternatives to the cars. They don't have good enough transit that it solves that what they used to call the last mile problem, but really is the last five mile problem of when do people get in their car? They get in their car to go get a quart of milk that's like a mile away because there's nothing closer. But the e-bike changes that. I'll get in the e-bike if it's a mile away. Or yep. two miles away. I really think that they're different from bikes in that so many more people, so many more environments, so much more distance. I love it. Well, this has been very inspiring. Lloyd Altler from the Treehugger magazine. You can go to treehugger.com. We'll also link to the article so folks can check it out. And also from Ryerson University, zooming in from Toronto. I really appreciate your time today. It was fun. Thank you. Very good. We'll be in touch. And obviously keep us in touch on how the e-bike revolution keeps rolling. And full disclosure, I don't have an e-bike yet, but after all the research and conversations and arguments for them, I'm like, what am I missing? Why don't I just go ahead and grab <laughs> one? <Yeah. laughs> uh, maybe I'm waiting for that federal right. rebate that should be coming through. So that'll help lower the price points and maybe make it a little more accessible for somebody on a nonprofit salary. <laughs> but thank you, Lloyd. It's been a pleasure. Yes. You're listening to Bike Talk. Bike Talk is a bike coastal radio show. We're broadcasting in Florence, Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, and we're also a podcast at kpfk.org in Los Angeles. That was Galen Mook, the executive director of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition. He interviewed Lloyd Alter, who's a writer at treehugger.org, about Lloyd's article, Politicians and Planners Are Missing the E-Bike Revolution. We continue on the topic of e-bikes now with Taylor Nichols in Los Angeles interviewing Dr. Natalia Barber, assistant professor at the Delft University of Technology and e-bike enthusiast, co-editor of Streets Blog Chicago and co-founder of Better Streets Chicago, Courtney Cobb. Hi, I'm Taylor Nichols and I'm here with Natalia Barber and Courtney Cobbs. Natalia is a researcher and well, Natalia, why don't you introduce yourself? You might do a better job than I would. Sure. Thank you for the introduction and having me here. So I'm an assistant professor at Delft University of Technology all the way in the Netherlands. Great. And we also have Courtney Cobbs from Streets Blog Chicago. Courtney, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Courtney Cobbs. I live in Chicago, Illinois. I am a sustainable transportation advocate. I co-founded the organization Better Streets Chicago here in Chicago, a grassroots organization working to decrease car dependency in the city by advocating for improvements to public transportation and advocating for real cycling infrastructure here in Chicago. I'm also the co-editor of Streets Blog Chicago, a blog that focuses on sustainable transportation issues in the Chicagoland region. Great. Thank you so much. We were talking just before we turned on the recorder that both Courtney and I had the pleasure of listening to the Active Towns podcast last week when Natalia was a guest. So we want to give a shout out to John and Active Towns. And Natalia, thanks so much for being here. I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the e-bike situation in Delft and how that has changed some of the biking infrastructure and how that's changing some of the multimodal transportation there. 
Sure. So Delft, as you know, is a very, very bike-friendly city. You go on a bike for most of your trips from the school to work to dentist, shopping. And now with the e-bike introduction, there was just a study that I ran across last week. So they did an incentive program and saw who the users are. And they found that the incentive program contributed to half of the trips substituting car trips and the other half of the trips substituting regular conventional bike. So the e-bike here is growing. It's like an e-bike revolution. And you can always see it on the hill because you don't know if you're just that slow of they're going up the hill with the e-bike. And some of the people are just really that fast and you're that slow. But more and more, you can see that there is a high uptake of e-bikes in Delft. And I feel like in general, we can see that transition. How about you guys? Have you seen it in your cities? Well, so it sounds like half of the trips are taking away regular bikes. So those are bikers who are transferring from a bicycle to an e-bike. And the other half, it sounds like you say, are coming from car trips. So do you think those are drivers that are just giving up their car for those trips? Or are they also cyclists who are just biking maybe further distances? That's an interesting question. That was not my study. So I did not have a first-hand view on the data. But some of the findings kind of hinted at that being induced demand. And then how different people feel about induced demand. So I was reflecting on that. And even if those are not car trips, but they would substitute car trip and meet someone else's need, what's wrong with that induced demand? If someone needs to go visit grandma or go shopping, and then they will just hop on an e-bike. So I don't think it's very easy to measure what trips are being substituted. And I don't always feel like there should be a negative connotation around inducing demand, because obviously there is demand to be induced, particularly for e-bikes and for meeting the needs of people. Right. You know, there was a quote I think I saw on your webpage or your website that said, e-bike transportation or alternate transportation is not really just about less congestion. It's a social justice issue now. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so now that we can see how big of an issue transportation sector is and how it provides access, it doesn't only provide the transportation. What it does, it provides the accessibility, and then we can fulfill our daily routines. And from the research perspective, I've been also studying its impact on health and then studying different social demographic groups on how they adopt shared mobility. So not only bikes and e-bikes, but also in a much broader sense, how we can identify the needs of different groups of people with statistical confidence, and then how we can react and create policies that are responsible for helping those groups of people who have been historically overlooked in policy and transportation. Right. By being sort of forced to own a car or to drive a car or in Los Angeles being forced to use substandard public transportation. And I actually just pulled up some data and it said that in the U.S. there are 822 cars per thousand people. And that made me reflect that people will probably be more likely to purchase a car than to buy their first house because it's out of necessity. And that's just mind blowing. Yeah, I think in Los Angeles, we actually have more cars than people, which is crazy. How about Chicago, Courtney? Are you able to ride this time of year still or is it getting too cold or are you an all year round rider or what? So thanks to my e-bike, I am now an all year rider. The issue we tend to have in the wintertime is the city doesn't clear the bike lanes in the winter. It's sort of like 
a game of hot potato in terms of who is actually responsible for clearing the bike lanes? Is it the streets department? Is it the transportation department? No agency really wants to take responsibility. So oftentimes if I'm not riding a bike in the wintertime, it's because the bike lanes are full of snow. We haven't had our first snowfall of the year. Two days ago, it was 60 degrees. So it remains to be seen how this winter is going to play out. Right. And Natalia, what's winter like in the Netherlands? I've never been there before. I've been to the airport in Amsterdam, but that's about it. Yeah, so it's my first year here. So far, it's been rainy and sometimes very, very windy. And that's when the e-bike comes in handy because you can push on that turbo mode and you know, you're the one who's passing everyone on the cycle path. So the turbo mode, I've been also talking about it a lot on Twitter. Huge fan. I don't know about you, Courtney, but a huge fan. Oh, you know, yeah. The other day it was super windy and I was so grateful for turbo mode. It makes a difference. <laughs> well, I don't have an e-bike yet, but I live in Los Angeles and the wintertime is just about the best time in the world to ride a bike because it's usually sunny here, but not hot. So it's very comfortable to ride the bike, but I guess I'll have to go to an e-bike. Did you have a car, Natalia, when you were in the United States? I know you kind of went from Alabama to Florida to Massachusetts. Did you own a car then? Yes, we were a two-car household, which is very typical. We were a one-car household for a pretty long time, but it just turned out to be not sustainable, particularly in Alabama, where everything is very spread out. And then once you get into that comfort zone, you just stay a two uh, car household, which I'm not very proud of, but there was just no other method to get around that would fit my needs. And I feel like it's all about meeting the needs of people when it comes to transportation and convenience. Sure. Yeah. I'm a two car household also, but I'm a multi-bike household and both of my cars sit in the driveway most of the time, which is so wasteful for land use. That's a problem in Los Angeles. I enjoy seeing old photographs of Los Angeles and downtown Los Angeles was covered with street parking and still has a great amount. Do you have a car now, Natalia, or are you completely car free? So we shipped the car before moving to Delft. It took four months because there were a couple of hurricanes. But it's been a huge mistake because the car just sit in the parking lot. So you live and learn. And that decision was made before I got to experience cycling everywhere. But we will see how life plays out in the future. Right. But so far, maybe we've used it twice, which is horrible. And Courtney, how about you in Chicago? Do you have a car in Chicago? I do not. I've lived in Chicago for eight years and about... A year and some change, I had a car. As soon as I was able to get rid of it, I did. Yeah. I think for young people, especially not having to have the burden of a car payment, car insurance. I lived in New York for a long time with a car and we had to move the car from opposite sides of the street all the time. And it was a real burden. So I'm hoping that the younger generations that follow will not be burdened with that. I want to talk a little bit about bike share. We are just starting to get that in Los Angeles. It started in the downtown area, and now it's been branching out into Beverly Hills, and I live in West Hollywood, and we are struggling with a couple of issues there. One is not all of the bike share stations are the same bike share company, so you can't always take a bike and drop it off at a station because it's a different bike share company, one. And two, 
lots of the distances that we travel in Los Angeles are further than the 25 minutes that they give you. And I'm curious, Natalia, what kind of research have you all been doing about bike share and what's the best way to implement it in cities? That's a good question that I don't think we have time to get into details, but I'm going to try to share very brief findings of my research on bike sharing data were collected in 2019. So it's relatively new. And I looked at user behavior and how frequently users use that system. Because if you think about it, if you're a regular biker, you're going to own your bike. So according to my data, bike sharing users, and I quote them in my research, frequent users, use bike sharing system at least once a month or more. So that's a bare minimum, at least according to my study. And then I also looked at the likeliness to substitute car trips by bike sharing. And I found the different groups responding to the bike sharing behavior differently. For example, I found that males are more likely to be regular users. And then I found also that there is a proportion of low-income households that were also more likely to use bike sharing. And that would create an amazing opportunity to provide mobility to a lot of lower-income folks. And in terms of that mode substitution, I found that millennials are more likely to substitute car trip with bike sharing. So I think there's faith in younger people. And lastly, when I was doing literature review, I concluded that the bike sharing systems will only work. The system is large enough to, like you said, oh, there may be a bike sharing system, but that's not the app that you have on your phone. And that creates another barrier that you constantly have to seek for the right bike in the right place. So the systems have to be large enough to accommodate all the variety of trips. Right. I was in Barcelona recently and they have a pretty big bike share. I think it's called BC there, but I ended up using a private bike share company called Donkey Republic, which allowed me to download the app on my phone and then find a bike anywhere that was around. And I could just take any bike from any place. It wasn't at a station. And I wonder if you've done any research that talks about those two different systems, either city-owned bike share that's at stations or city-owned or private bike share that is drop-off, pick-up, anywhere you leave the bike. I did not do any research on the different systems because the one that I studied was stationary, so not the free-floating kind. And there are issues, as you know, with both and their pros and cons. For example, the pro of the free-floating is that they're distributed everywhere. But also what happens is then the bikes end up everywhere. And that's a danger, just like with the scooters. Sometimes they are very hard to monitor. And for the bike sharing that's stationary, it's the opposite. You have to walk to a station because there's no opportunity for the bike to be randomly placed. So you know those constraints, and I think they are just very common. And it's like choosing what suits city the best, depending on their land use and their geography. Yeah. I think when I was in Barcelona, the Donkey Republic bike that I rented, and I had it all day long. I think I ended up paying nine euros for the full day, which I thought was a good price. And I wondered if there's been any research on changing the price of bike share. In, in Los Angeles, it's $1.75 for 30 minutes. And that seems high to me, one. And I'm curious, how much do you think, or maybe in Delft, how much of the budget of the bike share comes from actual rental charges? And is it worth it to charge $1.75 or is it possible Like we're talking about mass transit being free now in Los Angeles, mass transit on buses has been free since the pandemic. They're going to start charging again in January. But I'm just curious if you've talked about a price level or making them free or how that affects it. 
Uh, no, not particularly, but that kind of relates to the price elasticity for a particular item or service. And that goes to our willingness to pay. And for example, e-scooters are generally also relatively expensive. So they're gearing towards a different demographics than other transportation modes. But in Delft, for example, our campus has parking that's covered for the faculty. And then you can reserve a bike for free. And I believe there is something similar that comes with a train card that you also can use city bikes. So there are programs, but I don't use them because I am a regular user now. So I just use my own bike. But I know a lot of people use those bikes when they travel. So they don't have to get them on the train and then when they go visit places. But right. that would be very interesting to see how people respond and what the kind of customers the bike sharing programs get depending on the price. Right. And in Chicago, Courtney, how does it work there? Before I respond to that, I do want to plug Better Bike Share. I don't know if it's Better Bike Share Project, but I know if you type in the Google Better Bike Share, the website should pop up. They do a lot of research on bike sharing, particularly in North America and how it can be more equitable and studies on just how to improve bike share. So I think some folks might be interested in that. Here in Chicago, we have a pretty large bike sharing system. I believe we're at about 10,000 bikes. I could be off, but the system recently went through an expansion by adding e-bikes last summer and by expanding the coverage area in the city. We're not yet at citywide coverage and certain parts of the city have more bike share stations than others. I feel like we do fairly well when it comes to first mile and last mile when it comes to train travel in Chicago. A lot of the train stations have a bike share station nearby. Not all of them, but most of them do. If you are a member of the Dibby system here in Chicago, the e-bike trips are cheaper and you don't have to pay a fee to unlock or gain access to the bike. The membership is around $108, if I'm not mistaken, for the year. And then if you rent an e-bike, it's 15 cents per minute, depending on where you pick up the bike. In certain areas of the city, it's cheaper and there's no unlocking fee just because of equity reasons. If you are not a member like me, so I recently had to use Divi when my bike was in the shop for a couple days, and it is $3.30 to unlock the bike. Wow. And then it's 20 cents per minute, if I'm not mistaken. So one day I had a trip that was less than 10 minutes, and it was almost $10. One thing that did increase the fee for that trip was I didn't lock it at a station. And so it's an extra $2 if you don't return the bike to the station. So those fees can add up pretty quickly. But for myself, I don't think it's necessary for me to have a Divi membership in addition to having an e-bike. But plenty of Divi users have their own personal bike And before I had an e-bike, I had a Divi membership and my own bike just because sometimes I would bike to the train station and go to a different part of the city and maybe I missed my bus or maybe it was just faster to hop on a Divi bike. And so I would use the Divi bike for that last mile leg of my trip or just to get from one place to another. 
Right. I just need to point something out. You mentioned you paid three thirty for unlocking the bike. Isn't that more expensive than a gallon of gas at the gas station? It is. Yeah. It is. It's also more expensive than hopping on the train or hopping on the bus. But yeah, you are exactly right. That's higher than one gallon of gas. Well, it isn't in LA. <laughs> but I'm really distressed to hear that about Chicago. In Los Angeles, getting people out of their car for short distances is so important. Creating that Aaronsville area around where you live or work, where you can do so many things easier, faster, and safer, hopefully, on bicycle is dependent on getting some people out of their cars. And it just feels like if we have to take a hit on the price of bike share for a first couple of years, that that would be really worth doing it. And I'm so disappointed that even in Delft, it's expensive, it sounds like, for bike share. I'm not sure about the prices. I feel like the city bikes come with your train cart, which they're very marginally priced. But all the other ones, I think you pay a little more. But you know what? Now I'll take note and yeah, I'll check yeah. that. Yeah. You know, um, now I, I'm curious. Yeah. I have been lucky enough to travel a fair amount, both in my career and also just lately. And it's always distressing to come back to Los Angeles because we have made so few advances in safe bicycle infrastructure on the streets. And I'm curious to hear from you, Natalia, after living in Alabama and Florida and Massachusetts and then now being in the Netherlands, what lessons there can we bring back here? I don't know that we'll ever be Delft or Amsterdam, but there's a lot of room for improvement here. And I wonder if someone with your background and experiences has any ideas of how we can move forward faster. I think there are a couple of things that play a role in the safety, if, if that's what we are discussing. For example, yes. when I lived in Florida and Florida was declared a state with the highest number of bikes and pet crashes and injuries and deaths. And then the researchers went to study that. And it's very hard to really gain insights of what it really is caused by. They know where the areas are. And of course, those are the areas that need more investments in safe crosswalks and safe bike lanes. So there's so many different factors. But I also noticed, and this is more my personal observation, there's also driver expectation. And when you're driving in Florida, you don't even expect pedestrian or you don't even expect a biker. Um, here, because they have right of way, you always are on the lookout for either a child or a biker. So in addition to safe infrastructure, I think it's a lot of in the culture and how we expect the people to show up and how we react to them, because I bet that plays a huge role as well. Right. I bet there's also the legal implications or legal regulations. I believe in the Netherlands, if a driver hits someone who is walking or biking, they're automatically at fault versus like in the United States, a lot of times if you're hit as a pedestrian or a person riding on a bicycle, it's not always a given that the driver is assumed guilty. There's a lot of victim blaming and the system is really set up. It's like an easy pass. There's literally a book titled How to Get Away with Murder. Something along those lines. If you want to kill someone in the United States with no consequences, all you have to do is just get in your car. Wow. Yeah. That's so it's sad. And I think you're totally right. I often hear that the cyclists are the ones that are blamed. Oftentimes it's, well, they weren't wearing a helmet. Well, that's got nothing to do with why you crashed into them or why you ran the red light or stop sign and crashed into them. So I'm glad you brought that up. 
Natalia, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Yes, it's interesting that you're mentioning it because the first thing that we were told when we moved here was do not hit a cyclist because that very, I would say that the laws are much stricter. So cyclists are always right. And of course, I don't want to generalize, but that's the mentality that when the cyclist has a right of way, you better wait your turn. And there's this roundabout around where I live and around it's red. So that's where the cyclists go and the cars have to enter in and out and they just patiently wait. It doesn't matter whether there is a car line, if there's a cyclist and you can't really get too close. So it's pretty nice experience and kind of empowering. I'm going to have to go there because it's completely the opposite here in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's like cars are the boss so to speak, and everyone else is kind of like a guest, an intruder, a nuisance. And it's completely the opposite in the Netherlands. It's like people come first and then the cars come second. Yeah. Natalia, before we wrap it up, what are you working on now? Any study new that you're working on that you'd like to share? I just recently published a paper on work from home. And when I was trying to come up with the presentation, I started thinking, is work from home even about transportation? I'm studying not even mobility, but immobility. And then I looked at CO2 emissions from transportation. So I found some interesting behavioral changes, for example, that were contributed to COVID to work from home shift. So that was my most recent work. And I'm currently embarking on the energy sources in transportation. Someone actually recently asked me whether I'm a researcher or I do advocacy. And I feel like I want to merge these two. So moving forward, I'd like to do more research on bikes, bike sharing, those topics. So hopefully there will be something coming up in the future. Would you tell us what your Twitter and Instagram handles or names are so that the audience can follow you and get some of that information? Because I think it's so important that we as advocates have research data at our fingertips to explain to people why driving isn't always the best option for a short trip or why cycling is better for BMI. And we didn't even talk about that. I'd actually like to hear you talk about the health of active transportation as opposed to just the sedentary lifestyle of automobiles. Sure. So before I get to the Twitter handle, two things to answer your question and on e-bikes. So I started this thread, what do research say? And then I tried to post some cool research on e-bikes or bike sharing or bicycles. So one of the things I found is that bike commuters tend to be the happiest. And I wanted to leave on that very, very high note because they have very high commute satisfaction. And once you experience that, It's similar to the COVID paper that I wrote. Once you experience certain phenomena, you'll be more likely to continue it. And I hope that with biking, once we get people to experience it, they can continue. To go back to the BMI very briefly, I looked at not only how our activity impacts our BMI, but how our BMI impacts our activity. And I found that people with the high BMI, they have different behaviors that relate to transportation than people with normal BMI. My Twitter handle is at Natalia underscore Barber, and I'm hoping to be posting more research. In the interest of time, I'm not going to dive deeper into the BMI, but it's kind of fascinating that it's both ways. Right, right. Thank you. And Courtney, really quick, is there anything that you're working on for Streets Blog Chicago that you want to share or talk about and then end it with your Twitter handle and Instagram and all that? 
One update at Streets Blog Chicago, we recently hired a bilingual writer, a bilingual contributor for us. So I'm really excited about that to expand our audience to Spanish speakers and keeping people who speak Spanish in Chicago updated on these issues. You can find me at Twitter at full, F-U-L-L, Lane, L-A-N-E. F-E-M-M-E. And you can also keep up with updates on Better Street Chicago at Shy, C-H-I, Streets, Better Street Chicago. Great. I'm Taylor Nichols and my Twitter is Taylor underscore Nichols 7. One of the things I'm excited about, we are recording this Friday the 17th. Tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, the 18th, we're doing a Sunset for All meeting at Dinosaur Coffee. I don't know if you guys know Sunset Boulevard, but it's an iconic street that runs from East Los Angeles all the way to the ocean. And we're trying to put bike lane along that and make it more pedestrian friendly. So hopefully we'll all talk again. Hopefully, Natalia, you'll make it out to the West Coast someday and we'll be able to ride on Sunset (laughs) and Chicago with Courtney. Thank you very much for being here, you all. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Same here. Thank you.